0: Uh, moves among us uh, today, that the word of God will become clear, clear that uh, I'll be able to speak clearly God's word and God's purpose and God's plan for each and every every one of us. Uh, during this time of Advent, I've been looking, I've been reading a devotion book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I've been sharing some quotes with you from that from that book. And here's a quote from this week's um, Advent reading, which fits with the sermon and with the theme of waiting and looking to the Lord. From his book, Life Together, he says this, When God's Son took on flesh, He truly and bodily took on, out of pure grace, our being, our nature, ourselves. Now we are in Him. Where He is, there we are too, in the Incarnation, on the cross, and in His Resurrection. We belong to him because we are in him. That is why the scriptures call us the body of Christ. He took on us, we've taken on him. Uh, We are the body of Christ. These last weeks, we've looked at who Jesus is. The angel proclaimed to the shepherds that they were bringing him good news, great joy, For all the people today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. A Savior has been born to us, which is great news, good news. It's unbelievable news. And what we've looked at these past several weeks is what kind of Savior has been born for us. Many of us understand the concept of a Savior, one who saves. But what kind of savior is this Jesus that has been born? We've looked at the the truth that he is a prophet, one who proclaims the word of God to people. He is a prophet. Today, we're going to look at the truth that Jesus Christ is a priest, one who stands between uh, God and the people. And then in uh, on Thursday evening, Thursday evening is Christmas Eve, right? Uh, Thursday evening, we'll look at the truth that in a short devotion about Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Today, I want to look at this truth that Jesus Christ is a priest. He is the one who, where he is, we're with him, and he stands between us and God and makes a way for us to come into God's presence. And the most famous passage on this, which we looked at a couple of years ago, actually, and I want to revisit it. When we looked at the book of Hebrews, is Hebrews 4.14, which says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, led us. Jesus is a great high priest. He is the greatest high priest. Because he is there, we are there with him. The problem is for most of us in 21st century America the whole idea of the high priesthood and what that symbolizes gets a little bit lost on us. We start to try and bring in other analogies like uh, Jesus Christ is our defender, Jesus Christ is uh, is our mediator which he is but there's a specific picture here that God has spent thousands of years really, Laying the groundwork for, in order to show us that Jesus is the great high priest. Let me, let me back up and see if I can't put it like this. Coming in January, we're going to do a series during our time of fasting and prayer on um, the power of story. The power of story. His story, God's story, our story together together and my story personally, and to show that there is power in what God does and has done throughout history to proclaim his story and God's design for mankind. So hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus Christ ever came, God set up a system where people's sins could be taken care of. From a biblical standpoint, it's like this. When man sinned, When Adam originally sinned and fell, sin separated mankind, both Adam and everyone who was born after Adam, which includes all of us. Sin, which we were born into, separates us from God. There's a division. Because God, who is holy and righteous, can't just overlook sin. Some penalty or price had to be paid for the sin. So in... The time of Moses, he set up the priestly system whereby the priest would offer an animal sacrifice. The blood would be shed of the animal to pay the price for the people's sins. The wages of sin is what, according to Paul in Romans? Something's got to die. For sin, sin is so strong, and separates us so much from God that something, a penalty of death has to be paid. In the Old Testament times, it was the poor animal whose blood was spilt. And so God set it up where the high priest, the priest would come before and on the altar of sacrifice, sacrifice the blood of an animal so that the sins of the people for the time being could be taken care of. There's some pictures there that God is setting up about who Jesus Christ is going to be later. And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 5, really 1 through 10, but I only want to look at verse 1 through 3. I would encourage you to look at verses 1 through 10 to see some of the inadequacies of the high priesthood. Jesus is the high priest, but because high priests were men There were some problems there. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The stuff we just talked about. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Still talking about the high priest. The high priest shouldn't be one who gloats over people like, I'm so much better than all of you. In other words, the high priest is supposed to say, I am one of us. Therefore, I, I can relate to the weakness of the people. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as the sins of the people. As a matter of fact, the high priest is supposed to be so humble that when he comes before the altar, he's not only offering sacrifices for all the people who've sinned, because he's human, he's also offering sacrifices for himself. Author of Hebrews goes on and says, not only that, but that high priest, the old one, he's also going to die. So he's going to have to be replaced over and over and over again. So you have these combination of things that are occurring. He's having to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He's going to have to He's replaceable because he's going to have to die, but now Jesus has come. Jesus is the great high priest who who can sympathize with us because he is one like us, but he's different in that he's never sinned. Not only that, but he becomes the sacrifice himself for the sins of the people. It's it's so mind-blowing. It's hard. Only Through God's grace, can we get our minds around this truth that in order for humans, us, to be reconciled to God, because there's this division between us and God, there's a payment that's required. Jesus came, like us, to be able to understand us, to sympathize with us, and to be the sacrifice, the payment himself. Now, The author of Hebrews says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father. Our high priest is in heaven, the one who was sacrificed. All of this points to some truth for Christmas that we should be able to walk in. In other words, okay, pastor, I'll give you all you've said so far. I'm saved, but what does Jesus being high priest mean for me now? What difference does it make in my life? And by the end here, I pray that you'll see that it makes all the difference. That if you're living your life with less than these things I'm going to share with you, the high priesthood of Jesus is not being fully realized in your life. In other words, we say this at Fullness a lot, and I pray that it sinks into all of us. And it's this. Jesus did not come to die just so that you would go to heaven. I mean, that's a good thing, right? I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I'd rather go to heaven than hell. Anyone? I mean, just in the long-term scheme of things, that's where I'd rather end up. But if that's all I've got, then why not when I get saved, do I just not go to heaven right now? There's something, I'm here for some reason. I'm here for some reason, and it's, hey, could I have everybody figure out where their phone is and turn it off? I'm getting dings and beeps and buzzes going on. Could you just take one second? Can I intercede? And I think somebody's phone's up here. Mitch, is that yours? <laughs> Maybe it's because, you know, Mitch is a popular dude. Maybe his is just dinging away up here. And that's what I hear. Thank you, brother. All right. We're going to start these points together. Point number one. Here's how the high priesthood of Jesus makes a difference. We should look to him in faith. Look to him in faith. Therefore, Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the... What? What? Faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. We have the ability to look to Jesus Christ in faith because it allows us to draw close to God. In other words, without what, it's impossible to please God? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Where does the faith I have come from? It comes from him. Thank you. Good answer. It comes from him. In other words, faith is not this, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, suddenly trying to convince myself of some truth that I really don't believe because it's so silly. But I'm going to try and talk myself into it. Faith is a gift from God. It comes by God's grace. Otherwise, if I were able to generate my own faith, I'd end up boasting about it, according to Paul in Ephesians. I was dead, but by grace, through faith, Jesus Christ made me alive. I get that whole faith thing comes from Jesus. So where Jesus is, I am, so faith should rise up within me. It should make a difference in how I live my life by walking out moment by moment in faith. He, the author of Hebrews, goes on and says, look, Jesus Christ was tempted like you in every single way, yet didn't succumb to the temptation. Because of that, because of his victory, now I get to go in confidence into God's presence by faith. I'm not sure I'm tying this together very well, but let me put it like this. Many of us, when we think of Jesus, we think, well, you know, he had, a, he had a step up. He was God. And, you know, because he didn't succumb to temptation, he doesn't really know what temptation is. Because he never said, you know, Jesus never had the internets. If he had had the internet, he probably, you know, who knows? He didn't have some of the things. He didn't have television and commercials and movies and all the things we got today. He, he probably, listen, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. Only in overcoming temptation do we know how hard temptation is. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. Uh, And it's a longer quote, but just hang with me. You'll see the the power of this idea of Jesus overcoming temptation. He says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Hello? Hello? A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives... I want to make sure I'm the right A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. I love this quote. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who, ever, who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Isn't that great? That's who's at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us right now. That's why we can come by faith. Faith, because Jesus knew what it was like to be tempted more than any of us, because some of us, we gave in really quick this week. I got mad, I said something I should have, shouldn't have, should have. I wish I had said something I should have. But I gave in to temptation. Jesus overcame. that. We place our faith, our trust, our hope in him. We need to confess. See, faith is not blind faith. We have faith in a real person who was tempted and suffered and overcame. We need to profess our faith in Christ. We need to say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith. And in doing so, we draw near to God. Here's what I would ask you today in this point. What is it that you're confessing today? What are you confessing? Are you confessing faith? in Christ? Are you confessing faith in something else? Faith in money, faith in gifts, faith in status, faith in people, faith. We place our faith in a lot of different things. We trust a lot of different things. I mean, look at our whole system of economics. I mean, we, we I, I, it's so complicated. I don't understand how doing this helps this or lowering that helps that. But we have faith in it, sort of. Listen, our faith has to be in Christ. He is our high priest. second point. I said I wasn't going to get bogged down in these first two because the third one is really where I'm headed. But here's the second point, and they're all good, right? I mean, this is really important. Number two is to look to him in prayer. Look to him in prayer. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need this term confidence here is, is from a greek standpoint it had to do with a it's a rhetorical term really which had to do with free and open speech of citizens with one another in other words if uh, mark colvin and i are having a conversation i know mark loves me i love mark we at times we can have a free and open conversation now we we may or may not understand what each other is talking about but we can have a free that was just for me and mark and some others but um we may but we can have a free and open conversation because i'm not worried that mark's friendship is based on anything other than the fact he loves me it's great to have friends like that by the way amen It's great to have people you can talk to who you're not worried about. Are they going to like me by the end of this conversation? Many of us don't have hardly any friends like that. But you've got one for sure. Jesus loves you no matter what. No matter what, he's already died for you. He's already given his life to you. Therefore, you can have confidence. You can have this assurance that you can come before him no matter what this bold frankness and this is not a this is not a a term that's showing a lack of um, respect for christ it's just that he understands who we are and what we're going through already and he died for us now we can come boldly confidently and by the way where are we going confidently to oh yeah isn't that great the throne of grace. You know, I don't know what you think the throne room of God looks like. You know, you, most of us, when we think of a throne, we think of a king who meets out justice and is mean or ugly or legalistic. Our God sits on a throne of grace. Hallelujah. John Calvin, who's not at times known for his graceful approach said this about this, the basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. Since God is fixed on his throne a banner of grace and a fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. It's not that God isn't majestic or isn't glorious, but the banner that he flies over his own throne is one of grace. As a result, we receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Mercy for our past failures, grace to meet our present and future needs. James 4.6 says that he gives us more grace, more and more. It's a continual action verb. He gives you all the grace you can stand, and he gives it to you particularly in your time of need. See, we think of ourselves coming before God's throne of grace, God's throne, trembling, afraid, terrified, That he not only knows what we've done to screw up, but as soon as we get there, he's going to bop us on the head. You know, like he's going to punish us. When uh, one of my sons was in middle school, who shall remain nameless for this illustration, um, he asked me and Kathy if he could go to a movie. And so we said, what movie? You know, we're good parents. You don't look at my sons right now. Just look at me. <laughs> Just hang with me. This is a good illustration. I don't want to convict them, so I'm using, not using a name. But So we asked what movie, and I don't know what the movie was they were supposed to go see. It was supposed to be like, I don't know, Toy Story or one of those you know G-rated movies. Well, um, what we didn't know was when we dropped them off at the theater, under peer pressure, they actually went to another movie. So, um, after they got home, they went to their, their bedroom, and I was coming downstairs uh, for something my, my boys all live in boy world, or did, which was the basement, and you can imagine what that place smelled like. It was just a boy world down there, and I'm coming down the stairs, and I find this ticket stub on the stairs. You know, when you're in middle school, you haven't learned quite all the devious nature of things, like destroy all paper trails and evidence. So I find this ticket stub, and it says Boogeyman. So I'm like, and I see the Showtime, I'm like, oh, my goodness, they didn't quite go see Toy Story. They went to Boogeyman. So um, my son cries out to me, he says, hey, Dad, come here. I go into the bedroom, and he says, hey, you know, I just can't sleep. I'm really um, bothered. I'm a little afraid. Would you mind praying for me? And so... (laughs) I'm trying to think of what to do at this moment. And so I I couldn't resist. I'm a terrible father. I'm sorry. I said, "Um, sure, but are you afraid the boogeyman's going to get you? And the look was just one of... Oh, my God, I'm nailed. (laughs) Do you know, I could have done a couple of things from that point, though. I could have punished them, disciplined them for lying to me and going to a movie, but they were, in some ways, undergoing the punishment of their own bad decision-making. So I did. I prayed for him because I loved him. I don't want that junk in his mind. I don't want him to be filled with that fear and that stuff. Look, I'm a bad father. I mean, I'm not a bad father, but I'm not, you know, a perfect father. I'm a pretty good father, really. But uh, (laughs) God, God is the perfect, if you stand that sense of humor, you'll do fine at our house. God is a perfect father. We come before his throne of grace and find mercy in our time. Isn't that awesome? what we find in his his presence. This is what prayer is. You're going to get the opportunity starting in January. We have it every day, but especially as a group, I'm asking you to join fullness in a time of prayer. Together, we as fullness, we're going to go before God's throne of grace. Find his purpose, his plan, his mercy, his help in our time of need. And I'm asking you to join with me in this time. Come up noon you don't have to come every day, but when you can, just come up. It's kind of a come-and-go kind of time. Join in. We'll have prayer meetings on Wednesday nights, uh, a special time where we come together as a congregation to prayer. Join us in this time of prayer and fasting. Third and final point, although it's got you know some subpoints underneath, but we'll move through those quickly. And this is really where I want us to look for the coming year, and that is to look to him in connecting with others. Look to him in connecting with others. The passage, we've just read it, is that he's a great high priest, and we get to approach the throne of grace, find help in our time of need. Here's the point. We get to connect with Jesus out of relationship, right? We're in a relationship. Really, Christianity and its basic nature is? Relational. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's also a relationship with one another and a relationship with the world. First Peter says this But you are not like that. He's saying you're not like the world, for you are a chosen people. You're a right, your kingdom of priests. Well, hello. You are a kingdom of priests, God's holy nation, his very own possession. Why? This is so you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here's the, here's the truth, people, and you can't escape it. God called you out of darkness into light. Now what are you to do? Thank you, God, for your light. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless me. Bless me. bless. No. He's, he's done it so that you can show others who are in darkness the light. That's really one of the major reasons God's got us here. Helping others come from darkness to light. We not only have a high priest, but we're appointed as a kingdom of priests. Three things under this. First, connect personally. Connect personally. We're to connect personally with God through Jesus, right? And we're connecting personally with others. He came to earth. Today a Savior is born. We want to help others connect to this Savior. That's why we printed up these cards, is so that you could take them and say, hey, come to this Christmas Eve service. What's going to happen at the Christmas Eve service? We're going to sing some carols, scripture reading. We're going to talk about why a Savior is born. We'll have a candle lighting. It's an opportunity for people in a in a non-threatening, really, environment to come and hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And again, Scott already pointed out, most people, all the statistics show that if most people will come to church on Christmas if you invite them. I hear this at times. I don't know who to invite. I don't know any lost people. I don't know anybody who's not saved. People, that's got to change. How are you going to connect personally if you don't know anybody? Listen, this is not the whole world right here. This is not everything. Find a way to get out. I don't know if you heard Jeff last week, uh, Jeff Klingenberg, when he was here. Great sermon. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the CD on that. He, He talked about stirring up our faith in order to share people. But he talked about how he goes to the gym every day, as you could tell. He goes to the gym a lot. Uh, If you were here, Jeff's in good shape. Uh, He goes to the gym, but he does it because that's what he called his fishing hole. He said that's where he meets people. He gets to personally know people and can connect with them. We need to connect personally with people, people in the church and outside the church. Go to a small group. Get involved in a small group at Fullness so that people will know you and be able to be encouraged by you and help you in your journey of faith meet people who may or may not know the Lord outside of fullness. If they don't know the Lord, invite them to come and to hear the good news. Again, we're more afraid. You know, there are two great truths I heard through Willow Creek one time that lost people and saved people are they're both afraid of the same thing, and that's sharing Jesus Christ. I mean, we're, we're really fearful, but just invite Invite people to come and hear the good news. Second, but to do that, you've got to connect personally. You've got to know people. Second, connect emotionally. Connect connect emotionally. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, you, you see over and over, he was moved. He was moved by the hurts of the people. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He connected emotionally with people. Some of you are afraid right now because you're afraid. Oh, he's going to tell me I have to care about people and their needs. Listen, no one's more afraid of that than I am, <laughs> really. Connecting emotionally for some of us is very hard. We don't even connect with ourselves emotionally. You know, I mean, really, most guys, we don't know what we're feeling. We're just doing stuff every day. My wife will say, how you feel about that? Who the heck knows how I feel about that? I, I, you know, you don't really, but listen, we need to connect with people emotionally. I, I know um, I, I am not the most emotionally driven person. I'm not really a cry, but there have been times where I've been sitting in counseling appointments with people, marriages falling apart, people's lives falling, and my heart breaks for them. My heart just breaks. I have trouble at times, and especially as I get older, Just maintaining my composure. I just want to cry on their behalf. But to do that, people, to to share, we have to connect. We have to connect emotionally with people. Jesus did for us, and we do for people. Listen, you've heard these illustrations before, that there are these two bodies of water. And, you know, a body of water where the water is just flowing in, but there's no outlet... It just becomes stagnant. It becomes built up with salt. Go look at the Great Salt Lake or the Dead Sea. Things don't live in there; they die in that low kind of location. We're being poured into on a continual basis by God. The the lakes that are alive with life are those that are giving away. There's an outlet that's flowing from them. Fullness. I. I, I I'm. I want to say this, if we continually come and are fed, but don't give out, we'll not only die personally, but this church will die eventually. It's a truth of life. It's a spiritual truth that we must be giving away what God has given to us. Third point, connect spiritually. Connect spiritually. By that, I mean... Jesus Christ came. Look, let's say that, um, that Debbie has an issue and I'm connecting with her personally. I know who she is. I'm connecting with her emotionally, but it stops there. Then I've done her a disservice. I have to at some point help her see the glory of God, right? I have to connect spiritually spiritually. And that's what Jesus came to do for us. He didn't just came to give us God's rules, like the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't just come to, to tell us, hey, God demands this. He came to bring us to God, spiritually. He came to, to help us find, find a way. We need to help others Connect spiritually with God. That means at some point, we do have to give away our faith. By that, share the good news, the light of Jesus Christ. Show them how to live. Connect with people personally. But at some point, share the good news. And it may not be like you think. It may just be giving them a card. said, hey, come with me. I, I wanna, I'd like for you to come to church with me. I'll sit with you. I'll help explain things to you yeah people are a little strange, but they love each other. you're going to love it. First Peter again says this, but you're not like that for you're a chosen people. You're a kingdom of priests, God's holy nation, his very own possession. This is so you can show others that the goodness of God that you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Another passage says, you are God's ambassadors, as if he's making his appeal through you. That's who you are. And you may be saying, look, Pastor, I don't know all the right words. I don't know the right things to say. You can do things that will make an unbelievable difference in people's lives if you'll be willing to be used to connect emotionally, connect spiritually, connect spiritually. There's... Um, I'm going to show you a a short video clip, and this is by uh, a bishop, Dr. Ron Archer. He's head of a ministry called Dunamis, and I want to be honest with you. He's got some frank discussions in here about life. It's not offensive, but it is frank, and he's starting off, to show you how frank he is, he's starting off by talking about a young girl who was drawn into prostitution. People, this, this will, I'm telling you, this will change your life. Watch Dr. Archer.
1: ...doing for you. You are sitting on a gold mine. She said, where? He said, you're sitting on it. And we call this being turned out. And little by little, she began to sell her 14-year-old body to grown men for money to survive. It's called turning tricks. And at age 16, she got pregnant. We call it having a trick baby. Two strangers meet for a business transaction, and there's a mistake. The pimp said, you can't make any money having a baby in the oven. We have got to kill this baby. They kicked her in her stomach. They fed her alcohol. They gave her drugs. They took a hanger and stabbed the baby over and over again. But the baby would not die. The baby was born two months premature with no pancreas, a learning disability, a bladder too small, unable to function, a severe stutterer. We call it a trick baby. Nobody wants the baby. No hope, no future. Kill it was the word. That baby was me. I'm the lowest of the low. I come from the guttermost. I come from a hellish condition. And so when I would go to school, I couldn't talk. I stuttered so severely from the trauma. My mother had a madam who hated men. Her name was Dolores, and she was a sadist. And when she would watch me, she would take a broomstick and stick it in a place where no boy should have any object in his body. And when you are tortured like that, you learn four things. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, and pretend nothing is happening. And by age 10, I had had enough. I wanted to die. And in my school, they put me in a boiler room with other kids who were dysfunctional like me, where we were finger paint all day long, and yet there was a teacher, thank God for her, who had a Gideon Bible, and she came to my school, and she saw kids like me as her mission field, and she would give me this Gideon Bible and read to me stories of dysfunctional characters who God used. She would say to me, Ronaldo... God uses greatly those who have been wounded very deeply. He will turn your pain into power, your wounds into wisdom. She had me read the story of Moses, who was also a stutterer. I began to understand that God did love a trick baby. Even as low as I was, there was hope for me and possibility. And when a child begins to understand the love of God and the power of his word and the possibilities, it changes everything. How can a young man keep his way clean by taking heed according to your word? Your word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. I began to memorize the Bible, that Gideon Bible, reading 2,000 scriptures. And when you put that kind of word in a life... Something begins to happen. My stuttering went away. I stopped wetting the bed. I stood tall. I became valedictorian, became a pastor and priest until everybody in my family got saved. Why? Because somebody placed a Gideon Bible in a woman's hand that changed a life forever.
0: What if that teacher had not seen her classroom as a mission field to share a Bible and give it away. This man runs a major ministry in the United States today because one woman cared enough to connect emotionally, spiritually, physically with this young man. You, fullness, we are a kingdom of priests. Why? So that we can have a little priesthood party? No. So that we can share and show his light to the world around us. Our high priest brings us into faith, helps us in faith, helps us in prayer, and helps us to connect with others. This isn't just up to you. It's what he's doing through you. Lord, I pray this morning that we will take on the mantle that you have given to us, that we will be a kingdom of priests. Why? To show forth to the world the praises of your glory and grace. Lord, I pray for every single one of us we would get out of ourselves and that we would lean on you. Lord, I, I cannot wait for the year ahead to see the great things you're going to do as we willingly place ourselves on your altar of grace and say, use us, O Lord. To say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. God, we give ourselves to you as instruments of righteousness to be used in your hands. Stand up with me, church, if you would.